And the message is entitled, The Three Most Significant Events in All Human History. Now, we've all had significant events in our life. I want you to think for just for a second. In, in your life, if you had to pick three things as the most significant things you've seen happen in our culture, in our world, uh, I think we could come up with that list. I know with my parents, I, I, without a doubt, two of those would have been the Great Depression and World War II. And they affected the entire world of that day. My, my mom, I still remember her saving little pieces of aluminum foil because they never knew when they were gonna, it was going to happen again. Uh, that depression shaped a generation. Uh, in my lifetime, I've seen man land on the moon. I, I've seen a terrorist attack that's dropped enormous buildings in New York. Uh, in this latest generation, uh, we've seen COVID, uh, the 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 worst flu epidemic in 100 years, used as a power grab for governments to control people. And uh, I think we haven't seen the ramifications of that yet because I think the spending that went on and the control over people uh, is, is yet to come to roost. Uh, and it's an enormous event. But all of those events, and if you can bring up my slides, it would be appreciated. All of those events absolutely pale in total insignificance compared to the three I'm going to talk about today. I, I mean, there have been great depressions in the past, uh, famines of, of Joseph, they're insignificant in our minds. There have been great wars that have wiped out huge percentages of the human population. We don't even remember them. But these events still permeate with ramification to this day, thousands of years later. Now, I, I love that we started with Psalm 8. I, I can't believe the way the Holy Spirit weaves a service together. And there was a rhetorical question in the middle of that psalm that said, Who is man, puny, sinful, insignificant man, that God should be mindful of him. Now, God knows the answer to that, and uh, that's where we're going to start. Uh, bring up the title of the, the, the sermon, The Three Most Significant Events in Human History. Now, I, I, I picked my three, and um, I suspect, if, if you're going to make your list, the creation of man is going to show up, and we've talked a lot about that. And guess what? It's not on my list. Because there was no human history to have history until mankind was there. So it's actually event zero. History hadn't started until man was made, human history. So that's not my number one pick. Uh, I think I have control of the slides. Uh, the first two on my list are widely denied by the entire world around us that they ever even happened, including most churches. They deny these things ever even happened. The last one on the list, hmm, I'm not clicking. That's going to be a bummer if I have no control. Here, we'll try this. Is pretty much considered irrelevant to the vast majority of the world around us. And yet these, these are my list of the most significant events ever in human history. Now, we're going to look at them in a chronological order rather than order of significance. Um, but before I even get to the list, to understand the significance of something, you have to understand some history around it and the relevance. And that's why I had us read the section of Scripture that we read this morning. And you'll notice a couple things. First of all, is God's word is describing the creation of mankind, the start of human history. It goes like this. And God said, let us make man in our image. That's the first time it's said that we're made in God's image. In our likeness, the second time it's repeated in that verse. Skipping down to the next verse, so God created man in his own image. The third time it's repeated. In the image of God, he created him the fourth time it's repeated. And because God knew where we were going to head as human beings, he makes something clear. 
male and female, he created them. They're not the same. We are two separate sexes. Now, Hebrew is written in a very specific way. Whereas we emphasize things as saying, oh, this is really important, or this matters, or you need to listen, we use words. Hebrew would repeat the same thing twice if it wanted to emphasize it so that you would know something that's about to be said is important. You'll notice in the New Testament, Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say to you. In other words, or, or truly, truly, I say to you. You would repeat it twice because what's about to come next is really important. Or... More to the point, uh, in the book of Revelation, where John has a look at, at God himself and those in heaven with him, and he's looking at apparently some of the most marvelous things in heaven and creation, those beings are not resting day or night, instead saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now this brings up two of the points I'm going to, about to say. It is really, there is no other place in Scripture that I know of that was three times we're told God is holy. That's way more than verily, verily. God is unbelievably, incredibly, unimaginably perfect and totally just and totally holy. That is his character. There's only one place I've seen something repeated four times, so we couldn't possibly miss it, that we're created in his image. Human beings are, are imparted with the very nature of God himself in a multitude of ways. Our creativity, our intelligence, our ability to communicate, our ability to love and have empathy. No other animal comes close. And most importantly, our ability and freedom to choose or not choose right from wrong, obedience from disobedience. No other animal. They're all ruled by instincts. God said it four times because he cares so much about us. He loves us unimaginably. He gave us his very essence. Human beings forget that. Because we leave him out of our thinking. Now, that's one piece of it. To understand these events that are about to happen, you have to understand how much God loves us. We can't even comprehend how much he loves us. I had tears in my eyes just now because of this next to last song you sang. It was just beautiful. And it involved that love he has for us. Second, when God created the universe, and the last thing he did was to create us, I want you to imagine, and I've shown you this before, that the universe is like this box. Now, this is such a simple concept, but the whole world doesn't get it. God made the box. He's not part of the box. He's outside the box. Time is part of the creation. In a Half a dozen ways over the last hundred years, we've shown time moves at different speeds depending on the amount of mass that's in the vicinity or location where you're measuring that time. Time moves at different rates depending on the speed at which you're moving through creation. Time is part of creation. God is not trapped inside of time. There's seven billion people on this earth. God can spend days listening and being intimately with one of those people and not lose a bit of time to spend with every other 7 billion pe people on this earth. It's why in Revelation it says God was and is and shall be. Simultaneously, God is in the past, present, and future. That's the God who made everything. And that's really important as they start to look at these major events of history. So keep those two things in mind. God is not trapped in time. He understands everything that's ever going to happen, and he sees it in advance. And if it's happening, he's allowing it. Now, let's go to the very first event. Major event that changed everything. 
It was the fall of mankind. Now, we have very little in Scripture that helps us understand what creation was like before mankind sinned. There's just a few little hints. Uh, Before the fall, wow, my font size changed. Bomber. (laughs) Well, I'll read it for you because it was a lot bigger when I loaded it onto the computer. Adam walked daily with God. Now, we just get little fleeting bits of what that could have been like when we see a sunset and emotion just drains over us. Or we hold a baby that's been born and is part of us. Or moments when we're quiet with God and we just feel His presence and it's overwhelming and it's power and majesty and the peace it brings. Just fleeting moments. Can you imagine physically being there with God as He shares His heart with us and walking with us? The magnitude of what that must have felt like? We, we, I don't think we can imagine it. But, but Adam wasn't sinful. Everything he did was absolutely perfect in obedience to God. I don't think a sinful thing entered his mind. But there had to be that option because if we're forced to be good and there's never any other option, we're just a robot. By giving us freedom, God gave us freedom to obey or not to obey. Creation was perfect. Uh, the last part of that section, and it's very specific, it says, um, every herb was given a seed on the face of the earth, and every tree and every fruit, and even every beast and bird of the air that creeped on the earth ate from the herbs of the ground. And in Isaiah, it says, when creation is returned to perfection, the lion will lay down with the lamb. So you didn't have animals ripping apart animals. You didn't have things killing and murder and bloodshed and death and cancer. Now, at this point, I can only speculate what it was like, but I'm kind of creative. So take this with this huge grain of salt. I truly believe that human beings were made to physically live for eternity. That means every time one of Adam's cells divided, it formed a perfect copy with no mistakes. Modern science has figured out, you know the reason we die? We mutate to death. Every skin cell that makes the next cell based on information, the information is a little bit more corrupt. And the third cell is a little worse. And the fourth cell is a little worse. And after millions and millions of cells, our skin starts to sag and our muscles start to deteriorate and our hearts don't work as well and our circulatory system becomes clogged and our brains start to miss the little synapse connections. And everything deteriorates. We mutate to death because mistake after mistake. But if that didn't happen, we would live forever biologically. That was the original creation, meant to live forever, spiritually, our soul, our spirit, and our physical body. That's what God had planned, and to have fellowship with us in person. But we threw it all away. I wonder, when Jesus had a glorified body, he was still a physical human being, God in the flesh. After he returned from the cross, he could instantly go from one spot to another across creation. He could appear inside of rooms. He could disappear and be gone. He transcended time and space. I wonder if that's what it was like before the fall for human beings. Maybe. We have no idea. It was totally different. But then, mankind chose to do the one thing he was told not to do, both Adam and Eve. Okay? Now, this is a fact of history. This is not a story. This happened at a real moment in time and space on planet Earth. You see... God said, and Satan revealed, that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam only knew good at that point. I don't think he even knew what evil was. He just knew those God wishes, and he was supposed to obey them in this area. If you eat from that, said Satan, you will become as God and know good from evil. Now that literally became true, and it's been true ever since. You see, Every time we disobey God, what are we saying? We're saying, I don't want to obey your rules. I want to make the rules. Ultimately, a God is the one who determines what's right and wrong. That's ultimately what a God is. 
we become little puny gods because we shake our fist in God's hand and we say, we don't want you to be God, we want to be God. We want to make the rules. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness can't tolerate sin. God sees all of history in advance. And he knows where sin goes. He knows it will always get worse. It will never be satisfied. And a sin may seem puny to begin with. Oh, I'm just going to eat, eat a fruit off a forbidden tree. What's the big deal? Because it will never stop. It will destroy and kill. It will turn into societies that raise children to eat children. Every human being is capable of that depravity. It will turn into societies that enslave women and enslave cultures and mass murder. That was what it was like before the flood of Noah. And it's what is, we're heading back in that direction today. Total depravity is where every sin ultimately leads. And God can't tolerate it. So here is a perfect, just God who can't just wink his eye at the direction it's going to head. He had to give humanity freedom, even though he knew they were going to sin. Because had he not, we would just be robots like animals. And he wanted love by choice, which means obedience by choice. So God creates this perfect universe with no death, no sin, no evil, no problems, no bloodshed, everything in harmony. We can't even imagine what it was like. And as a just God, knowing where sin's going to take us, he enforces what he said, and he brings death to humanity. Now, what was it like after the fall? Humanity was sentenced to death because we're sinful, and it's what we deserve. Little things. There was now pain in childbirth. Work became a burden rather than a pleasurable privilege. All of biological life was cursed and changed. And we just got a little picture of that with thorns being given to, to plants. They biologically changed. That's a picture of everything changed. Now why, if I was God, and I created these people, and I was told what to do, and they turned out to be sinful, and we could no longer have fellowship because he's holy and we're not, I'll just, well, the heck with them, I'll start over again. God loved us too much. He, he loved... The curse of death was an act of ultimate love on the part of God. Because had he not cursed us and allowed creation to continue, we would have continued to live forever, physically and biologically, and been forever through all eternity separated from him. Yeah, you're starting to understand what these events are all about. They're not about hate and punishment and, and retribution. They're about the only possible way to bring mankind back into fellowship with God. Christianity starts here. In church, you have got to understand and eternalize and believe these things or nobody else is going to. The world thinks it's fantasy. It's reality. It's the ultimate reality. So why didn't God just curse mankind why would he curse all of creation why do animals start wiping each other out why is there all this death why is there diseases and cancers and exploding supernova stars and entropy winding things down and all this stuff going on that's just nasty and storms that kill people why curse all of creation well i thought about that too and the only best analogy I can come up with is that it would have been intolerable for human beings who are living under the curse of death to continue to live in a perfect paradise world. And the analogy I have is suppose I am just covered with oozing sores and pus and I get this stupid blister on my lip and I've got to stand in front of you and preach. It's like it's a little picture of it. And, and I'm in rags, and I'm dirty, and I stink, and I can't do anything about it. And I have to go and stand in fellowship and talk to the most respected, revered, famous, brilliant, 
man on the whole planet. And I have an audience with him and he's never met me. And that's him and that's me. I mean, I don't know, think of Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or someone that would be, you just absolutely would respect um, in a position of enormous power and you've got to go be in his presence and this is who you are. It would, you would just be so uncomfortable. I think that's God in love and mercy took a perfect creation and he destroyed it all for our benefit. What a God we serve. Because he knew we couldn't tolerate it otherwise. So that's the first event. And it's real. And it happened. And it was ultimately an act of God's love. Now, okay. Hit my next, there we go. Missed my transition. I like the transition with the curtains opening. (laughs) The second unbelievably significant event that changed all of human history is God's judgment upon mankind at the time of Noah. And it wasn't Noah's flood, it's just the flood sent by God as judgment, supernatural event, at the time Noah lived. Again, it was an act of love as much as an act of judgment. You see, it came when there was only one righteous man left upon the entire earth. And had God waited another generation, there was probably no one that would have been left on this planet that was willing to obey, follow, and desire, even though they're not perfect, but had that unbelievable faith and desire to follow and obey God. It came the same year that Methuselah died. Did you know that? It's a picture of God's long-suffering, willing that none should perish. The man who lived the longest of any human being who ever lived had to die before God would finally bring judgment upon the earth. He waited that long. And by the way, Methuselah's name, the the, the ancient Hebrew meaning is, his death shall bring. Isn't that interesting? His death shall bring. And the implication is something very, very significant. And it was the flood that came after his death. And this is the the part of it that just stuns me. You see, throughout history, and even Israel's history, every generation, they start to serve God, and then the next generation walks away to the point where they're, they're taking their babies and they're throwing them on altars because that puny God has revealed to people that in order to get blessings, they've got to burn their babies on the altar. So it's, it's, it's like another God. There can't be two gods. God won't tolerate it because it always degenerates downward. And... So God would ultimately bring judgment to remind them who's in charge. And then it would happen again, and it would happen again. Well, it was happening before the flood too. But what God did was lock into the very rocks we walk on that sin brings death. Those rocks are filled with trillions of dead animals. And they all were killed because of mankind's actions, his death. And all the people were wiped out. And all those rocks are there as a reminder that sin brings death. So now, in every place of the earth, whether they have the Bible or the Scriptures or revealed things or not, all they've got to do is look down and see those rocks filled with death, knowing God sent a flood to judge sin. And there are over 500 cultural stories all over the globe that talk about a worldwide flood. Uh, and that it came because of mankind's sin, and that it was a judgment from God, and that man was saved by a, a certain person on a floating boat. I just recently uh, finished a book called Echoes of Ararat. See, the Ark of Noah landed on Ararat. All humanity spread out from there, and they all spread out with the remembrance that this flood judged this earth. As a real event, the entire planet was resurfaced. And this was just... North and South and Central America. And it had 260 different ancient Native American, Central American, South American accounts from all these different tribes and people groups, all of them having an account of a worldwide flood of one sort or another, universal deluge. Because it's true. And that's just the Americas. And all these other cultures and countries and the Polynesians and the Europeans and the Africans and the Australians, they all have remembrances of the flood. Because it's true. 
and it really happened. So locked into the memory of all mankind is right there at their feet, that evidence. Now I'm going to take, how am I doing on time? I'm doing good. I'm going to take the next 10 minutes, and normally I take about 30 minutes, because I, 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 I want you to understand the world is blind to this. The section from Peter that we just read, and it was the last slide, I'm not even going to take time to show it, said that in the last days, there will be a denial of creation and the fall, the fall is part of that story of creation, and a denial of the worldwide flood. So widespread denial of the two major events that affected all mankind and all humanity that really happened in real time and real space and not that long ago. Really true stuff. They're denied by the whole world around us. And the reason they use to deny all this is that they pretend the rock layers are millions and billions of years old. And they do that because they think there's never been a worldwide flood. So they misinterpret the rock layers. Well, there was a most significant geological event, and I think the last 2,000 years that happened in my lifetime, and it's Mount St. Helens. And I want to just take a few minutes and show some slides of that event, and I'm going to go through them pretty quick. And by the way, that flood left undeniable evidence for the age of creation and the history of this planet so that people could never get it wrong. By looking at the rocks and knowing there was a flood, they could never leave God out. It's physical right at everybody's feet. It's an act of mercy on God's part so he didn't have to keep bringing judgment generation after generation after generation. He did it one time for the whole planet and then he locked the evidence into the rocks we walk on. And by the way, Jesus said if people quit worshiping and following and listening to me as he's riding in to be the Savior in Jerusalem on Holy Week, he said the very rocks will start to cry out. Well, that's essentially what they're doing with these significant events of history leading to the last one. This was Mount St. Helens before the eruption. It became active and was spewing out smoke in 1979. Uh, geologists are coming in. April of 1980, the whole top blows off. Well, a third of the mountain, because of an earthquake and all that hot gas and air, slid down into the valley at 200 miles per hour. So it was an enormous flood flow event. I say enormous but it was teensy, puny, woony, itsy-bitsy compared to the whole world being flooded. But in that region, absolute catastrophe. A photographer was taking pictures. You know, you see this, this 900-degree ash heading out of the mountain. Starts out six miles away. Takes pictures a few seconds later it's, it, because it's coming more than 200 miles an hour at him. It's now two miles away. At this point, he says, I have enough pictures because here comes that gas right at his face. He miraculously survives in his truck as he's driving down. That mountain in full eruption, every second, was releasing the amount of energy that the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And it erupted for six hours. Atomic bomb, atomic bomb, atomic bomb, atomic bomb, atomic bomb. And it's just one teeny little volcano you see, if you gathered up all the ash that it put out in those six hours, it would be like a cubic mile, a mile by a mile by a mile. It's actually a kilometer, but it just, that's the same visual image. A hundred years earlier, a volcano erupted called Krakatoa. It put out about almost 20 times as much ash. Now, this volcano, when it erupted, shot that ash all the way up into the stratosphere. It traveled around the entire Earth in Europe the year 1883 that that volcano erupted the average temperature never got above average winter temperatures so it was the summer with no summer because of so much ash in the atmosphere so one volcano changed the weather patterns for the entire earth for three years it took three years for the average temperature to return to normal because of one volcano now during noah's flood there's one volcano in Yellowstone that's 20 miles across the round caldera thing at the top, 20 miles in diameter. Most of the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, most of, Nor of Australia in the middle areas, almost, almost all of Africa, most of the ocean basins is all formed from lava that flowed underwater. All this volcanism was happening during Noah's flood. This planet was being pulverized. Near the end of the flood, the continents are riding on plates with real viscous fluid. They're moving really slow today, but during the flood, they had to have moving, moving rapidly. India 
that plate slammed up into Asia and shoved up the Himalaya mountains at the end of the flood, those last six, seven, eight months. You know, the, the Rocky Mountains, the Pacific Plate and the North Atlantic Plate shoved together to form up the Rocky Mountains at the end of the flood very rapidly. They're not millions of years old. You know, if two trains come together at a fourth of an inch a year, fourth of an inch a year, fourth of an inch a year, and they hit, that's like those continental plates, they're not going to buckle up and form mountains. They're just going to stop or reverse. If those plates are moving together at 20, 30 miles an hour and hit, think of that train wreck. That's what created the mountains. And the top of the mountains are seashells trapped in rocks that formed underwater during the flood. All those rocks at the top of the mountain formed underwater. When? During Noah's flood. See, it all fits together to know that flood was real. So here's Mount St. Helens before that little eruption. Really little compared to the Noah's flood. That's what it looked like after the eruption. Total devastation. See, that's what Noah looked, looked at when he got off the ark. And he sat there for five months waiting for vegetation to grow so that the animals could have a chance to survive after he let them out. It wasn't a little local flood. It was the whole earth was resurfaced about 4,500 years ago. And everything you're hearing about earth history is wrong. Everything you're ever going to hear about millions and billions of years is wrong because they're leaving out this event. So they misinterpret the rocks. They misinterpret the time frame. And they present it as if it's a fact. So that mountain flowed down into this little lake called Spirit Lake, right, right, right there, sloshed all the water out, caused a 400-foot tidal wave that ripped a million trees down into the lake. And as it flowed down into the valley, it packed all that hot steam down underneath all that sediment and the ash landing on top of it. And the steam would get together. I mean, we're talking eight, 900 degree hot water vapor would get together in pockets and eventually burst upward and the land would collapse downward. So this is sediment, all this cliff area, and it's up to 600 foot deep, flowed down there at 200 miles an hour and stopped. And then ash landed on top of it. And then the steam burst up and the land dropped down. It used to be flat all the way across here. Look at how it's all erosional and cravesty and craggy looking. Geologists go to school and they're trained millions of years, billions of years, millions of years. They're trained, whenever you see this, they call it the dendrinic drainage pattern. It means that over tens and hundreds of thousands of years, water and wind and sand have removed little particles a little bit at a time and they float down into the valley to form a river or a new valley and then kind of settle down and freezing and thawing and huge amounts of time create that pattern. And whenever they go to Europe or Australia or down in South America or out west, you see it all over the place, and you see all this erosion, it means there's been millions of years. So they're trained to think that way. They choose to ignore that there's been a worldwide flood. That flood created that in a matter of seconds, not millions of years. It's exactly the same evidence. Uh, and then four months after that, there's another flood flow that broke through a bunch of these steam explosion depressions. It formed an entirely new river valley, and we could see what's the sediment look like that flowed down into that valley off the top of the mountain. And that's what you see is perfectly horizontal lines. It's not like putting a blender in mashed potatoes. At 200 miles an hour, it sorted it all out into different sediment layers. And as you go closer and closer, you see little tiny paper-thin layers. And geologists call those varves, V-A-R-V-E-S. They got names for everything. I call them a little layer. Well, they'll count them. There's places where they'll have little teeny layers, and there might be 100,000 of them, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And it, it, it goes 100 feet deep. What's, what do they teach students to think? Well, that represents a season. In the one season, a warm season, dead stuff die and it slowly settles. And then in a winter season, there's nothing forming, so it forms a little layer. And then the next year, you get another layer. And the next year, you get another layer. You can count the layers, and that proves there's been 100,000 years of Earth history. Formed at 200 miles an hour in a matter of minutes. You see, you get the same features, the same structures, the same flat layers, with lots of energy and a little bit of time that you would need a little bit of energy and lots of time to form. And nobody was there to see it happen that's still alive. So it's all interpretation. 
you can either trust what God has told us and interpret it based on that, or you can choose to assume the Bible is just a bunch of storytelling nonsense and you're going to leave out the truth and you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. So I'm going to jump past a lot of this. I talk about coal formation. It's all in my videos. Um, and I want to bring it home to the main point. So a little bit more of this presentation. I ended with the same verse that was read. People are willfully ignorant. They choose to deny the most significant events of all human history and are therefore they're guaranteed to come to the wrong conclusion about the rock layers. And by the way, that's what led to all of evolution and all that deception. Lots of time and little changes because everything has always happened the way it's always happened. That's the principle of geological uniformitarianism. The process of slow, gradual erosion we see today explains the huge changes we see in landforms of the past. Well, Charles Darwin took that Little tiny changes as, as one animal has offspring and they're a little bit different and some are a little bit better and they can adapt to environments here and there better. Perhaps over and over again over time and little tiny changes and lots of time could change one kind of an animal into a totally different animal. What's left out of students thinking? To get a new animal, you've got to add new, useful, complex information to the DNA code. And random mistakes never do that. Not a single example ever shown to any student has ever shown a random mutation can add useful functional information to the DNA code. It's like taking a computer code and randomly changing some of the bytes and bits. It's not going to work better. It will never work better. It's always going to deteriorate. See, that's known facts of science. They choose to ignore it. Because there's always ultimately only two choices. The box either made itself Everything in it ever either made itself or something outside the box made it. And we, as a country, have made the most significant mistake in our over 200-year history in my lifetime. We chose in 1948 to just ignore it when the Supreme Court said there has to be a separation of church and state, which was never in the Constitution. It's just pulled out of thin air. And then, 14 years later, and 15 years later, in 1962 and 63, we kicked God out of our education system. We said it's illegal to talk about God in any way, shape, or form because the church runs the school system, and that's part of the church's thing. So we can't have anything reference, thought, or, or evidence for God shown to students. And it's evolved in that direction. We kicked out prayer, and we kicked out the Bible. It's illegal at this point. And where has that led? <laughs> Sin never stops. The sexual confusion travesty we now live in is a direct result of what I think was the most significant mistake our country ever made, and that was it. I have a good friend who's a teacher in a high school system. We live in a small town, Midland, Michigan, filled with lots of intellectual people, but very conservative, uh, very, uh, you know, about 20,000 people, Lots of foundations from Dow Chemical, very conservative town. But the school system's run by the system, the national system. The teachers, the principals, the educators are all trained to think in a certain way. Well, uh, my, my friend just transferred from a, a small rural school to the main city school. And I asked him, the school just started. I, I said, well, how's it going? He said, it's different. And I said, you, you know there's something behind that. It's different. And I said, well, well, how so? And he said, well, one of the students who comes to school every day dressed as a girl, one of the guys comes day, every day dressed as a girl, he said, he came up to me and he said, Mr. Scott, some of the other students are looking at me weird and it makes me feel uncomfortable. Okay, now think about this. Now, here's what my friend, I, I know he wished he could have said. You know, to blink at absolute sinful behavior and not being able to say anything and not even care. That's not caring because you know it's just going to deteriorate and it's not going to help this man ultimately. What he, wanted, what he wanted to be able to say was, you know, every single cell in your body and you have 100 trillion cells tells you whether you're a man or a woman. It is the most firmly established fact in the entire universe 
whether you're a man and a woman. There is absolutely no question about it. And there's no amount of cross-dressing, no amount of hormone treatment, no amount of surgery that's ever going to bring you contentment or change you from a man to a woman. You're going against reality and the way God has made you. So it's obvious people are going to look at you weird. It, they're not even necessarily judging you. You are distorting reality, and you're not going to find contentment in this way. Now, that's not mean. That's not judgmental. That is helping point someone in the right way. But if he was to say any part of that, he would instantly lose his job. That's the, where his sin is heading. And I'll tell you, it will not stop. This absolute travesty in midland they're putting kitty litter boxes in the closets so that kids who think they're animals can go and go to the bathroom in kitty litter boxes and it won't stop there it will become a human right because we are vastly becoming the minority in this culture that you have to hire people who are living in total sinfulness to become leaders of your churches and organizations. And it will destroy the Christian church and drive it underground. It will never destroy the Christian church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. But that is what's coming. Because sin always advances. And God knows this. This is just another example of it. Now, as was stated out, the two things that will be denied are creation, the start of human history, and and the fall of humanity, why we're sinful, why we can't be gods, why we can't choose the truth, because we're going to choose the wrong choice, ultimately. And God's judgment upon mankind that we would never forget and know that this sinfulness is what brought death. Now, final, in the greatest, in the most significant, and, and we've got to get our hands around this, and the church does a pretty good job. It, not with the other one, this church does, but 99% of churches, they'll never have a creation emphasis weekend. They just don't deal with it. Oh, God's creator, that's all they'll say. But they're not equipping people for what's going on in our culture. He loved us so much. And by the way, I, I, I now know because I know the nature of God that this is true. Had I been the only human being on this planet, God still would have become a human being and he would have died in my place. Because through our desire, our innate desire, is to think we're good enough to come back into fellowship with God, to perform some religious rules, to obey certain things, to give a certain amount, to go to church enough, to do, 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 and then we're going to come back into fellowship with God. It has never worked in all of human history. Sin has a grip on us, and we, we are dead in our sins. And yet, as evil as we are, and until we understand the depth of our sin, we don't need a Savior. Why do we need a Savior if we don't really understand how sinful we are? We just do something to make up for it. But it never works, because God is totally holy, and we're just becoming our own little gods by doing those things. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were sinners while we're in the depth of our depravity and we didn't even know it, while we're making the wrong choices day after day and can't stop it, while we're stuck in our addictions and our habits and our wrong priorities, that's when he died for us, not after we became a good person and tried really hard. You start to get it, what God did for us, left glory, left paradise, left ultimate power to become a puny human being. How should he care for us? Um, you know, on the cross, Jesus literally became sin. Now, this is the thing about the timelessness of God. Jesus was God on that cross. You get it? And God is outside the box. He inhabits the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. So as Jesus is dying... In excruciating pain, he's literally doing it for us in the future and knowing it. And, he, and, and by the way, all our sins are written down and they're all in front of him. 
and all these nasty things we've done and the thoughts and the attitudes and the disobedience and the harm we've done to others, they're all right there on his mind as he's dying for us specifically. That's who our God is. And he still did it for us, even though we don't deserve it. He enabled us to walk again with the Spirit of the Lord. Because his death covers our sins. And now God's perfectly holy, can't live with sin, but he can now have fellowship with us. He came back to life, so we know we're, we're now saved from the curse of eternal separation or eternal death from God. He frees us from the captivity of sin. Now we have the ability to not sin. We didn't before. We really didn't, no matter how hard we tried. We are free. Sin does not control us, but we have to accept. It's not necessarily easy, but we can be empowered if we'd accepted his death in our place. And he gives us the ultimate purpose in life. I mean, what an event. Look at all it did. It wasn't just, oh, some Jew died 2,000 years ago. What's that got to do with me? See, that's the way the world looks at it. But that Jew was God who was outside of time and him dying then is the same as him dying in front of our faces right now. Because he's outside of time. And he knows us even then. So what's our purpose? Well, three verses actually commands. This is a command. It says, this is Psalm 143.4, One generation shall praise your works to another. Declare your mighty acts. That's the point of everything I'm here to say today. You have to start behaving as if you just believe what I just told you. That's what God expects. His mighty acts, the most significant events of all human history, are the sinfulness of man and what he did about it. Why death exists. It hasn't been around for millions of years. Those animals are in those rocks because of Noah's flood, not because of millions of years. It's a recent event, relatively speaking. I mean, thousands of years are enormous but we actually have to believe it enough that when we're lied to, we will share the truth with others. And that reveals what you really believe. If you're not willing to share it, if you're not willing to talk up when someone is being lied to for their benefit, how much are you really loving them? And how much do you really believe the truth? But you have to be confident in the truth. That's why I spent some time in the middle section giving just a few teeny little examples of how we know these things happen rapidly from a recent example because it is the truth and unless you're confident you don't talk about it if you don't talk about it you're not really declaring god's mighty acts to the next generation imagine if every university and every school and every internet site in the nation instead of having a false interpretation of biology and geology that leaves god out they talked about the evidence that supported what god says and there's lots of it we would live in a totally different nation Another one, and, and I love Ecclesiastes because it was the man who was called the wisest human being that ever lived, even including Adam. Uh, he may not have been smart, but he had wisdom directly from God. Uh, and after trying sex, and after trying money, and after trying accomplishments, and after trying work, and after trying ruling, it all fell short of bringing fulfillment in his life. And God put that book there for us to learn from. And at the very end, what did he say is going to bring meaning to your life? To fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And last, Jesus himself says as his final words to us before he goes back to heaven, and he will return, and I think it's going to be not that long from now, go therefore and teach all nations, teach them what? To observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So there's our job. Are we doing it? The tools I brought are just tools to help with that. And I am going to mention, during COVID, I spent two and a half years, I wrote my latest creation devotional. Didn't have it last time I was here. It's my favorite of every book I've ever contributed or written, and there's been eight of them. And the neat thing is, it's, it's gorgeously illustrated. Um, and about twice a month, there's a little one of these little QR codes, and people can point their phone at it and they go to these little two or three minute videos where I'm giving a little presentation of evidence along the same lines. So it's really neat for the upcoming generation. And I'm going to take time, even though I'm a little bit over, I want to read December 31st, and this is going to be my wrap up. 
My friend's father recently died of a ripe old age. And my friend asked the doctor what killed his father. Nothing, said the doctor. Surprised, and this is a real conversation. My friend said, well, he's certainly buried. He's dead. Something must have killed him. Well, responded the physician, everything killed him. Which was it? Nothing or everything. The doctor was explaining that as we age, essentially every organ, every system, every cell in our body weakens, deteriorates, wears out, and fails. Nothing specifically can cause our natural death, but eventually everything in our body kills us. Throughout our life, every division of every cell, tiny mistakes, mutations build up until the body's ability to repair and ignore these mistakes fail. It's pure fantasy to believe modern medicine will ever extend our lives indefinitely because every one of our hundred trillion cells begin to degrade the moment we're born. Only one person, now listen to this, only one person out of 6,000 will live to be 100 years old. 9,999 of us are going to die before we hit 100. Only one person out of 20 is going to live to be 90. Of everybody sitting here, 19 of us are going to die, and one of us is going to make it to be 90, more than likely. The death rate of humans is 100%. Why? Because we rebelled against our Creator, were desperately wicked, and the penalty for our sinful lives is physical death, and without our Savior, eternal separation from God. So why end this creation devotional with such a downer of a subject? Because it's reality of our pending death that should focus our attention on our true source of hope for the future. King Solomon said it's better to go to a funeral than attend a feast. Funerals remind us we all must die. Christians have far more than some vague hope for the future. We have an absolute assurance that there would be life after death. And we're just passing through this life on our way to a better existence. It's our prayer that you will see the plants, animals, people did not originate by accident and chance, but we have a creator. And this creator is your savior who died in your place. He's trying to get our attention by what he has made, so you will seek him and find him. He tells us in the Bible he wants to spend time with us in eternity. By accepting his payment for our sins, the fear of death and any fear about what comes after death is exchanged for joyful expectation. We hope those who read this book will ponder this and seek out that savior. And the scripture is from John 1, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, not hope, not wish, not think, that you will know that you have eternal life. If you don't know that, you better figure out why you don't know that. So thank you for having me. This isn't my normal creation sermon, but it's what God put on my heart. Because I've got, I'm 65. I've got maybe 10, 15 years, and my energy is going to wane. And I doubt, unless the Lord is merciful or has a job for me, I'll make it to 90. The odds are against it. So I don't have a lot of years left, and I'm not going to fool around when I'm talking to churches. Make a difference. If you don't believe what I've told you, study it, and then share it. And thank you for having me.